Welcome to Can, Can We, we talk, talk About This? I'm your host, Amberly from The Power of Birth. And I'm your producer, Rajelle from Be Designs. And together we created this podcast to talk about women's health and the things that really matter. We have a real passion and focus on women's health and wellness and overall emphasize the importance of talking about maternal health. We chat to experts and continue sharing your stories. We're here to start the conversation, raise awareness, spread the word, call out gaps in the system and implicit biases. And we hope you learn something or even if you're just screaming yes the entire podcast. This is not a place for small talk. We're about real talk. And when we know better, we do better. And we challenge you to start this conversation elsewhere. Hyperemesis gravidarum occurs in up to 10% of pregnancies, which is actually a new finding, whereas general morning sickness affects up to 80% of pregnancies. Hyperemesis gravidarum, or HG, is the second ranked indication for hospitalization during pregnancy, the first being birth. Women who suffer HG have increased risk of antenatal depression, anxiety, suicide ideation, termination of pregnancy, and severe nutrient depletion and mental illness beyond birth. The consequences of HG can be devastating. Despite these findings, hyperemesis has continued to go undiagnosed, unsupported, and ultimately untreated, leaving many women struggling physically to survive. Today, we have invited Caitlin K. Smith, founder of non-for-profit organization Hyperemesis Gravidarum Australia, who has experienced HG in her pregnancies and was astonishingly dismissed, rejected, and denied treatment multiple times for her chronic condition. HGA supports sufferers and their families and healthcare professionals and is on a mission to change the stigma and inadequate care of HG women and advocates for awareness and further research and demands change. Caitlin, welcome and thanks so much for coming on today. Can we talk about this? Yes, we can. I'm very excited to talk about this. Everyone always laughs when I do that little. (laughs) I just wasn't expecting it. I was like, oh, yes, we can. (laughs) Yeah, let's talk about it. So I was just saying to you before that I was a survivor of two high-premises pregnancies, undiagnosed in my first, diagnosed 12 weeks in hospital with my second. And I'd kind of heard this word. I didn't know anybody that had had high-premises before. And so I really was kind of navigating this alone and the significant impacts that it had on me during pregnancy, but then also postpartum, well into postpartum as well, was pretty shocking, to be honest. And so when I found Hyperemesis Gravidarum Australia, I bawled my eyes out because I was like, oh my goodness, I am not alone. So tell us, what is Hyperemesis Gravidarum? How serious is this? And do we know what causes it? Yeah, so hyperemesis gravidarum, as you know, is just the worst of the worst when it comes to pregnancy sickness, pregnancy conditions. It's sort of like a combination between the worst hangover you've ever had and the worst gastro food poisoning you've ever had, except it lasts for months at a time. So it's sort of characterized by mainly really debilitating nausea and then vomiting. But there are a host of other things that go along with it, the complications from the nausea and the vomiting as well, and then other things, you know, some women experience, and I'm going to say this incorrectly because I've only ever seen it written down, but tyalism, where excessive salivation on top of the nausea and the vomiting, which is obviously incredibly complicated, and 
yeah, it's a spectrum in terms of severity. You know, I think everybody's pretty well versed in what morning sickness is affecting about 80% of pregnancies, which is, you know, that's the majority of women who are experiencing some sort of twinge of nausea or a little bit of vomiting. But it can really, I think this is where the awareness comes into it. A lot of people don't realize that it's can get worse than that, you know, that it's not just limited to the morning and that there are some sort of versions of it that women can experience that require hospitalization, require feeding tubes being put in for nutritional replacement. There are women who get so sick that they go into really early stage organ failure, extreme weight loss, and obviously then the concerns at that level as well of the health of the baby are are in question as well. So it's a really broad spectrum, which means that it is sort of hard to define because there's so much that falls under the umbrella of what it is. But diagnostically, it's nausea, vomiting, weight loss, not being able to eat or drink, a sort of a host of things that come along with that dehydration, headaches, that sort of thing. So it's pretty nasty. It would be pretty nasty to live like that if you weren't pregnant. But when you are pregnant and you have the anxiety of having to sort of be the home of this new little person that you're already in love with and already excited to meet. It's intense. And so is there, oh, I mean, we've both lived through it. <laughs> I know. I feel like I'm preaching um, to the choir. Yeah, absolutely. But it's funny that you say that though, because I shared a couple of your posts on hyperemesis gravidarum awareness day on May 15th, and it had 12,000 views on Facebook. Wow. I don't have uh, like a massive following or anything like that. And particularly on Facebook, I only started it like a month ago. Mm. And that really shocked me because I was like, oh my goodness. And then, you know, I'm reading comments and shares and all these sorts of things that I'm linked to. And the amount of women that are like, this is what I had. And Mm. this is how it affected me. Mm -mm. It was phenomenal. Mm -mm. It's absolutely one of those things that you have when you have it, you feel so alone and you feel so isolated and you feel like, oh, I'm the, this, I'm the only person this has ever happened to because I think even if you go to hospital or you mention it to your GP or you mention it to a friend or someone, everybody kind of just goes, well, yeah, you've got morning sickness. And you go, wow, like I must be the first person who's never been able to handle morning sickness. Like this is a really bad sign. And then when you sort of come out of it or you decide to find some support online or or however it is you come to it and you read these stories of other people who've had these extreme experiences similar to your own and you go, oh my God, like me, me too. Wow. There's more of us. And it's such a great community to be a part of because everybody who's in it has felt the sting of being isolated because of it or having their experiences invalidated. And um, it's so normalized sickness in pregnancy. And, you know, it is, that's what makes the conversations about it tricky, especially when we're talking about trying to find cures and causes and things like that, because I think there's a reluctance to pathologize something that is just a normal part of the body's process. You know, it is understandable that when you fall pregnant and you have this huge surge of hormones and your body starts doing things that, you know, it's probably never done before and being pumped full of stuff, it's, you know, full of hormones that it's never experienced before at levels it's never experienced before, doing work that it's never done before, it's understandable that you might feel a bit weird 
physically about Mm. that. And so a bit of nausea and a bit of vomiting and the achy boobs and the headaches and the fatigue is, it's understandable because of what your body's going through. And I think because of that, the whole spectrum of it has become completely normalized. And I think there is a little bit of sexism at play as well that, you know, this is a women's issue. You've chosen to get pregnant. You know, you want to do this thing. So you have to put up with everything that goes along with it. And so it sort of has been swept under the rug a little bit. And there's not a lot of interest in researching it. There's not a lot of interest in getting to the bottom of what causes it. I mean, there's a fantastic researcher that works um, in tandem with the American charity, the Her Foundation, who basically has gotten to the bottom of it being uh, genetic and being associated to a couple of genes that switch on when you start growing a placenta out of nowhere. But in terms of of research into what causes it prior to this, the work of this doctor and, and research into cures and things like that, people just aren't interested, unfortunately. For me, if you think about it on the sickness on to sort of a linear spectrum, there is this sort of marker point where it tips over into being not normal. You know, everything before that is there's no need to take prescription medication, you know, take a little bit of time off work, take it easy, take care of yourself, definitely. But there's no reason to pathologize it. It's normal. It's part of pregnancy. But once you hit that invisible line in the sand and it tips over into, okay, this is impacting your ability to eat and drink normally. It's impacting your ability to work and socialize and parent maybe your other children. It's impacting your mental health to an extreme extent. That's when we need to start talking about it. And that's when we need to bring out the big guns in terms of treatment and conversation and awareness. And this is why I love what you do. Can you tell us then a little bit about HGA, Hypermesis Gravidarum Australia, and a bit about your story and how this all came to? So, yeah, I am, I mean, a two-time survivor of HG. And after my first pregnancy with my daughter, which was in 2018, what's really the saddest thing for me about my first pregnancy, the story of my first pregnancy is how common what happened to me is, you know, that when it was happening to me, it felt unique, you know, that there is no way that doctors and psychiatrists and midwives are routinely brushing off this level of illness. You know, I thought something is really, really wrong is happening in this hospital that I'm visiting. Something is wrong with me that's making them not want to take me seriously. Like this is a unique case of negligence basically. And then when I started the charity, when my daughter was six weeks old, I said, I sort of started looking at the stories of other women, other survivors in this community, Facebook groups, other women who were sort of reaching out to me. And I realized that my experiences had not been unique at all, that all of the dismissiveness that I had experienced at the hand of healthcare professionals, all of the isolation, the invalidation, the questioning, the mockery at times is being experienced by hundreds of and thousands of women across the country. And all of our stories, while unique to us and, and some elements are different, are really the same story, which is no one believed us. No one took us seriously. No one wanted to help. No one cared about what was happening to us because our babies were healthy. And it 
broke us a little bit, I think. And I just didn't want that to be the end of the story. I didn't want to believe that we can live in this country that has this fantastic public healthcare system, the best in the world, that women at this really important and vulnerable time of their lives can walk into a hospital miserable and sick and suicidal and be met with such apathy, you know. And I didn't ever want another woman to feel like she was so powerless in that because we're setting women up to fail, I think, at motherhood before they've even started. If your experiences of pregnancy are that you're not being listened to, you're not being believed, you're being told that your experience of a situation is not right, it's not accurate, it can't be real, then how can you then hand that person a baby and tell them just to trust their instincts and that they'll know what's best for their baby? And, you know, it's an impossible flip of a situation, you know. And, yeah, I felt absolutely broken. And and also I was talking to someone about this last week about how when you have a, in quotation marks, rare condition or someone you love has a rare condition or something, you sort of have to, like, develop an extensive medical knowledge in like a matter of days. Like you have to become an expert in it really quickly. And like, I'm sure you were the same, but I had like a folder, like a plastic folder in both my pregnancies that was like all of my discharge notes and all of my referrals and all of my scripts. It was just like this binder of stuff that I took with me everywhere. And I had this encyclopedic knowledge of, of hyperemesis and how to treat it. And I got to the end of my first pregnancy and I was like, well, what am I going to do with my newfound expertise? Like you can't, you can't just expect me to become an expert in something. I'm using the word expert loosely, obviously I'm not, but like (laughs) you can't just expect me to like learn all this new stuff and then just forget it. Like I went to uni for four years and I don't use any of that knowledge. I'm not going to (laughs) also just like waste all this other accumulated knowledge, you know, that's too much wasted learning. So I thought, well, I'll start a charity. And it's, I mean, it's been amazing. I suspect that there has been like a therapeutic element of it as well, because, you know, I speak to a lot of women who have a lot of PTSD and a lot of resentment or fear, anxiety, all of these things about what happened to them when they were pregnant. And I don't have a lot of that, you know, like I, I do feel traumatized, particularly about my first pregnancy. My second pregnancy, I think was very healing, but I really struggled in my first pregnancy and I struggled with my first baby to bond with her and after everything that had happened. But I feel like having the charity is as much a selfish act as it is like something that's helping people because I just love it so much. And it's so beneficial to me to be able to talk to women and feel, you know, that moment of, I get an email from a woman. I get it. I get emails a lot from women's mums telling me, you know, my daughter is suffering and and there's nothing Mm -hmm. I can do. Can you give me some advice? And I love Mm -hmm. that because I love proactive family members. Like that's, you know, half the battle. Yeah. Like getting your mum to, to the place where she's like, I just, I'm going to email some random lady on the internet and hopefully she emails me back. And, you know, and I send emails back and it's just, you know, it's information. It's like, well, these are the treatment guidelines and, you know, these are the public hospitals in your area that do fluids in the home and this is what's recommended, rah, rah, rah. And the emails that I get back that are just like, oh, my God, thank thank you for not questioning it or not looking to poke holes in the story or something. Because that's probably been their experience. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. they have had doctors and nurses and midwives tell them just to go home and drink a cup of ginger tea or something. And, you know, finally someone tells them, no, there's actually something useful you can do. You know, I think Mm. that would have meant the world to me when I was um, suffering and I, yeah, I, I really loved doing it. So what gets me is that women have been birthing babies for ever 
since the beginning of time and it's 2021. Uh-huh. I believe your charity is a couple of years old now. Uh, yeah, nearly three years old. Yeah, Nearly three. And this is the first time we have something like this. I'm a little <laughs> bit confused. Well, yeah. I mean, it's confusing. One of my favorite pieces of trivia about Australia and hyperemesis is that until uh, 1994 or 1995, it was listed in the DSM, which is like the diagnostic manual for mental illness. So mm-hmm. it was listed as a as a mental illness until, I, I, like my maths is going to be off, but that's less than 30 years ago. Like mm-hmm. that's 20 something years ago, like in my lifetime. I remember 1995. That's how recent yeah. it was. So I think that probably goes part of the way to explaining what on earth has been happening. That was very much the the story uh, for women, I think, looking back over centuries. And like you were saying at the beginning, a women's a woman's problem. Yeah, it has existed for as long as pregnancy has existed. And, you know, people sort of say to me sometimes like, oh, it's crazy, like how everybody just suddenly has it. Like it's the diagnosis du jour. It's like, no. That's <laughs> not how this People works. have just started paying attention. You, know, you can't develop something just because you read about it in the news. Like that's not how yes. it works. Um, <laughs> it's just that no one, I mean, ask any woman who's had fertility issues or endometriosis or anything, she will tell you that it took a really long time to get diagnosed or it took a really long time to find a doctor who would take us seriously. You know, I, I read, I keep citing this stat to people and I really need to find where I read it because otherwise it just sounds like I'm making it up. But I did read something last year that said like, it takes a woman seven times as long as a man to get diagnosed with the same condition. And women are routinely prescribed, like it's harder for women to get hold of painkillers and it's harder for women to get hold of, you know, anti-anxiety medication and opioids, you know, painkillers or sleeping aids and that sort of thing, because people just question us, you know, and I think maybe it's a long bow to draw, but I think if you look at the way victims of sexual violence and domestic violence are treated, the automatic position of a lot of people is doubt to question a woman's accounts of her own experiences. And I think that absolutely bleeds into healthcare as well. I don't know any situation where it's appropriate to tell a person that their own recounting of a firsthand experience isn't right, isn't true. Mm -hmm. And yet it happens all the time to women. And I don't know. I mean, it's far beyond well, mm-hmm. yeah, we are. Yeah, no, you're absolutely yeah. right. We're guilty of it too. Um, mm. That it's yeah, far beyond me to to know or to speculate. But like how we've gotten <laughs> to a place where anything that comes out of a woman's mouth can't be trusted is mm. crazy to me. And I think that that's absolutely something that's happening when it comes to. I mean, it was that was my experience. You know, I would go to ED and I would say, "Well, I've been vomiting." constantly, you know, 10, 15 times a day for the last 6, 12, 18, however many weeks. And they would say, well, have you really? Or they'd say, well, this is insane. Yeah. Like you're 25 weeks pregnant. So like we really, you know, this, and this kills me because there's absolutely nothing clinical in this statement, right? Like I don't know why a doctor feels that this is a complete conversation, but I had so many doctors say to me, well, you're 25 weeks pregnant and, you know, we really expect to see morning sickness resolve after the first trimester and then would walk away. And it's like, 
I'm basically in the third trimester and I'm still sick. Mm. That's not advancing me. Like that's not helping me, you saying that to me. If anything, doesn't that say something's not right? Let's interrogate this further. Let's see what's (laughs) going on. Let's help this person, you know. So, yeah, it's, I mean, it's just a, it's an absolute minefield of just so many different social issues, gender related issues, Mm. all balled into one, throw in pregnancy on the top. Mm -hmm. So everybody's anxiety is heightened. So I wanted to, I guess, briefly chat about the the implications in pregnancy of a hyperemesis pregnancy. What happens to a woman at this point, physically, mentally, what's happening? I mean, yeah, it's an incredibly serious condition, complicated by the fact that you're trying to grow another human being at the same time. And I think when I talk to people about it, I like to sort of talk about it in terms of like, well, you know what chronic dehydration and starvation can do to the human body. Everybody has sort of a basic understanding of that. That's pretty much what it is, you know, to varying degrees. You know, some of us can eat a little bit or can eat a little bit of a type of food or can eat at certain times of the day or certain days of the week or certain weeks during the pregnancy, certain points. And obviously the the ripple on effect of that, I think something that I like to try and stress to sufferers that I speak to is that dehydration really sets in really quickly. That's part of the battle is that things get bad before you realize it. And I think for some reason, this sort of universal marker of I need to go to hospital is when you pass out. But if you're not someone who was a fainter Mm. and then you faint and you go, oh, my God, that was weird that I fainted. I should go to the doctor. I should go to the hospital. But also, I'm not someone who, when I'm not pregnant, throws up 20 times a day. But it never occurred to me that that was something to go to the hospital. You know, like it's this weird what are red flags and what aren't are totally insane. Yeah, you're in trouble way before you realise, I think. And there is a little bit of hesitancy, rightly so, around really invasive, aggressive treatment. So because the burden is on the state to pay for those things, they're a little bit more hesitant. So I got a pick line in my second pregnancy and it was, you know, a whole song and dance to get it in. And it took three different doctors blowing 12 different veins to try and get one liter of fluids into me before they said, yeah, okay, maybe instead of blowing this many veins every, you know, second day when you come in for fluids, we'll do this. And women being offered feeding tubes and things like that, which I think as well are indications of severity of the condition. Like if we were to sort of ask how many women have been sick enough to get a pick line, how many women have been sick enough to to have a feeding tube placed that's not necessarily indicative of how many women were sick enough to warrant those things. It's more an indication of um, how many women or how many practitioners are willing to, to be that aggressive in treating the condition. And there's just not that many because I think a lot of them don't want to believe that it's that bad, but it it, it can be, you know, like yeah, there are, absolutely. there are women dying from it here because we have a really excellent healthcare system, but women d- die from it. I mean, it does sound That's really essential. <laughs> Absolutely. Like if yeah. someone doesn't eat and drink and they've got, you know, a baby sucking the life out of them, like, yeah, things are going to go pear-shaped pretty quickly. So that's the severity of it, I think, you know. that. So then what about mentally? Because I imagine oh. having to terminate a pregnancy that you wanted due to the severity of your hyperemesis, I, I can't even fathom what that would do to a mother. Yeah, let alone, you know, the studies that I've read about 
depression and anxiety and chronic grief. And I just, it's almost insanity to me. And that, you know, these issues can go on and you could be treated uh, for say antenatal depression or postnatal depression and it never be linked to hyperemesis. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's amazing to me when I speak to someone who's had hyperemesis, who is well adjusted and is just getting on with their life because it, it's almost impossible to walk away from the experience unscathed mentally because, I mean, we can understand why, for instance, someone who is suffering from some other kind of chronic condition, you know, chronic pain or cancer or anything, injury, we can understand why that would have a mental effect. So why can't we understand why this kind of chronic, because that's what it, it's chronic sickness. And just because it's linked to pregnancy, which is a happy time in your life, does not discount from the fact that it's a sickness and it may I think it's it's made so much more complicated by the fact that you're supposed to be happy you're supposed to be glowing you're supposed to be in love there are all of these things that are attached to it it's such a vulnerable time you know if you I was very lucky that I've I haven't experienced any pregnancy loss but I imagine like being anxious about losing a pregnancy that you also are not enjoying is a very complicated feeling you know and I've said it before but I think it's really difficult to expect a woman to effortlessly parent the child whose pregnancy made her suicidal or whose pregnancy they considered terminating because the, the guilt and the anxiety and the shame and the fear that are wrapped up in those feelings, even if it's just for a moment and even if you never thought about it again, but I don't know a single woman who's had this condition, who hasn't at some point gone, oh, my God, I wish someone would just end it. You know, not not specifically saying in my life and the pregnancy, whatever, but just wishing for an end. And then when you come out of that, whether it's because your symptoms sort of clear up or you get a good treatment plan or you have your baby, you remember what that felt like for that split second to have wished this mm. all away and how, you know, I, I remember – especially after my second baby when I had a, re- a much uh, better pregnancy and a really amazing birth and I you know, was really bonded to him and I remember I, when we first brought him home sitting on the lounge and my toddler was with me sitting next to me and she was playing with her new little baby brother and it was just this you know, beautiful, like I imagined there were like cartoon Disney birds floating above my head. Like I felt like <laughs> Snow White. It was just this beautiful picture-perfect moment and I just thought like there were so many times where I wished this away where I wished that this wasn't happening to me and look what I have now like look what I would have missed out on and I'm so lucky that I even got to make that choice you know like that I wasn't so sick that I had to consider terminating because one of us was Mm going to die or that I didn't miscarry because my symptoms were being ignored and I was so sick you know Um, I was so lucky to have been in this situation that I could have those thoughts and then not have to act on them but it's just, it's such a complicated mental game, you know, just getting you and living in survival mode of getting through today, getting mm-hmm. through this minute. And then if you have older children, I'm sure, you know, you have experiences of this in your second, like I just was absent for nine months. I just didn't, I wasn't the mother that I wanted to be. She was totally obsessed with her dad because I did not have the time of day for her. It broke my heart. She you know, oscillated wildly between missing me and wanting to be right on me and not wanting to have anything to do with me because I didn't want to have anything to do with her. And, 
you know, it was just a mess. It was absolutely heartbreaking every single day. And there's just so much to recover from. And then physically so much to recover from. And then you give birth, which is, you know, a lot. And then you have to, you know, if you're trying to learn how to breastfeed or you decide you want to like, I formula fed my first baby from a week old and loved it. Best decision I ever made. And then this, my second baby, I was like, he's going straight on formula. Like not it, no question, no hesitation. And then some woman gave me a side eye in Coles a week after he was born. Cause I was stocking up on formula and I fell to bits, you know, like over a decision that I'm very happy and comfortable with mm-hmm. and makes my life so much easier and saved my mental health. And I just went to pieces after three years of being a formula feeding mom, have never felt shame about it ever. And there I was because I was just absolutely shattered from nine months of just living in this like crazy mental game. You know, it's, it's so misunderstood. It's so underrepresented um, when we're talking about postpartum mental health, you know, it's, yeah, it's a minefield. I don't even have the language to talk about how much of a yeah, minefield it I is. I feel you for sure. And I mean, it made sense to me though. I suffered pretty severe postnatal anxiety after my second baby, which was my worst pregnancy. Mm. And, you know, as I'm trying to connect all the dots and I'm on this kind of healing journey and I'm trying to, you know, put the pieces of the puzzle all back together, mm. hyperemesis just kept popping up. Mm. And I'm thinking, okay, there's something really big here. Mm. And so I guess maybe for those women who have suffered hg before can maybe connect the dots to their to their mental and physical health and i really think that those two interact a lot more than we Mm. than we talk about Mm -hmm. Uh, you know i think of the significant postnatal depletion for a hg woman Mm. particularly if they go on to breastfeed or you know Mm. whatever other decisions that they make in their life and how that plays out um, with mental illness Mm. Um, yeah it's definitely something that doesn't get talked about enough for sure so what other would you say long-term effects there are from hyperemesis I mean physically the big one I think is I mean teeth obviously is a big thing that comes up Uh, my teeth are ruined yours look lovely but I'm sure you know (laughs) you feel a bit like they've seen better days not being able to brush your teeth without throwing up or or just all the acid from throwing up I mean that's a huge thing yeah I have huge gastrointestinal issues left over from my first pregnancy I'm really lucky that I don't think anything's sort of gotten worse second time around but you know your stomach becomes hypersensitive you I was on bile suppressors for you know, the better part of the last three years. And no one says to you like, oh, suppressing your body's sort of natural bile production is going to sort of throw a spanner in the works when you decide to eventually come off those drugs, you know. Um, And I needed them and I don't regret taking them, but I sort of feel like I've, yeah, I've gotten things out of whack a little bit. But yeah, there's everything that you, that sort of feels like it goes wrong after pregnancy. It's like that under a microscope, you know, your hair falls out, feels like your insides are falling out. Your muscles don't work properly. Your skin's a mess. Your boobs hurt. In this case, your teeth hurt. And then, yeah, being dehydrated, I really, you really have to re, and this is a, both a physical and a mental thing. You really have to relearn how to have a relationship with food and, and water, you know, like Mm -hmm. food has sort of, it's such an individual thing, but I had such a love hate relationship with food. Like I was so hungry and I just wanted to eat and I just couldn't. 
And if I did, I was punished. You know, I was so sick afterwards. And it's this back and forth of like, um, I can just, I'll eat just a little bit today. Oh no, don't eat today. Oh, this, you know, and that never ending dance of, of trying to sort of not be hungry, so hungry. And so, and have your stomach so empty that that makes you sick, but then not eat so much that that makes you sick. And then timing the meds in the middle of all of this and getting fluids and things and yeah, having to relearn that like food is not the enemy and, you know, trying to, you know, say like, oh, do I have, are these aversions going to hang around? Am I ever going to be able to, you know, eat this thing that was a trigger for me or something, you know, it's, it's a song and dance. I even found women who just breezed through their pregnancies a trigger. Oh God. Yeah. I just felt this like immediate anger. Not towards them. No. Just about the situation. I know it is. It's so hard. And you sort of turn into this like evil, angry, yeah, (laughs) crotchety old woman who's stuck in her house, like a villain from a Disney cartoon. I'm talking a lot about Disney. And you sort of feel like this awful, you know, and it just feeds into this shame, guilt spiral, you know, that you have going on in your head. Like, yeah, it's a wonder anybody walks away with any, any sanity intact because. It's just you and your mind alone for months. You know, it's a recipe for disaster. I did want to ask you, what are some, I guess, common themes that you get from women chatting to you about their experience in hyperemesis? What's kind of like these really common factors or experiences? Oh, the big one is just being invalidated massively, you know, like, yeah being questioned, being told that there's no way that what they're telling practitioners or family members and friends is happening to them could actually be happening to them, which is crazy. So even from that point of invalidation, then the the ripple on effect of that, you know, like being denied treatment, being denied empathy at the basic level of care, you know, that's the big one, you know, women walking into ED and nurses telling them like, you've got morning sickness, go home, you're wasting our time is is crazy, but it, I get emails about that every day. People whose partners don't believe them, people whose parents don't believe them, whose employers don't believe them. And it being this constant battle of battling the sickness, but then also trying to convince people that you are as sick as you are. And that just shouldn't be, you don't need that on top of it. And then on top of that, and in tandem with it in some cases, is just a lack of education of how to treat it. You know, so many practitioners say like, well, I can give you some on Dancitron, but that's it. You know, it's like, that's not the case. Like I was on like five different meds all at the same time. There are so many different options. And if on Dancitron doesn't work for you or something else doesn't work for you, there are other options, you know, like the, the guidelines that we have, the treatment guidelines from the Society of Obstetric Medicine are really comprehensive. They cover most bases and they're there to be used, you know, and there, but there are so many practitioners who just don't know that they exist or don't use them. And it leads to inconsistent treatment across, you know, I could go to one hospital that's 10 minutes away and get them treating me by the guidelines. And then I can go to a hospital that's 10 minutes in the other direction and they're not doing it. And I speak to women in WA who are getting one level of care and women in Queensland who are getting another level of care. And it's just, you know, this mishmash of no one knows what anyone's doing and there's no consistency and there's no sort of expected standard of care or expected level of education that's required. 
And it means that women are doing all the legwork. Not only are they trying to convince you that they're as sick as they say they are, but they're expected to read up on what the current treatment guidelines are, become experts in pharmaceutical administration, become experts in IV fluid rehydration, you know, all of these things. It's like, it shouldn't be the way, you know, women, when you're sick, you should just be able to walk in and just say like, I'm sick. And someone goes, okay, cool. This is what we're going to do, you know? And for some reason in this one particular area, I'm sure there are other areas, but in this particular area, it's just not happening. I, you just brought a memory back by talking about this. So I was quite fearful of being rejected when I went to hospital for the first time, thinking they would just send me home with, you know, oh, you've just got morning sickness and, you know, basically what you've just said. And they didn't and they said I have hyperemesis and, yep, they gave me fluids and they I felt for the first time in both of my pregnancies validated mm. in my experience. I can't, I can't tell you where I would have ended up if they sent me home. I mean, I was in there for 24 hours and I got home and I just started vomiting again and so... I, I was really in a bad place after that, but I can't imagine where I would have been. Oh, um, yeah, if you hadn't yeah, had that Not having hours. that happen. Yeah. Um, but while I was in there, there was a, a, a girl kind of in the curtain room next to me with cannabis-induced hyperemesis, and Ooh. they were talking about it, and she's been in there a couple of times, I guess because of her drug use Mm -hmm. and you know she was also validated and she was also given treatment in you know I absolutely she should have been it kind of makes makes me think okay so if cannabis induced hyperemesis is recognized I don't know much about it or its history I guess but I'm like so then why are pregnant women being sent home with the same thing like it doesn't Mm. make sense that's insane and that's a perfect example of like the the double-edged sword, you know, like yeah, that because it's because it's pregnancy and people are scared. I think I really have to believe yeah. that it's not just that people don't care about pregnant women. I have to believe that it's people are scared. No one wants I to agree. do something that is going to cause harm to an unborn baby. So they do nothing. And because it morning sickness is so normalized and because pregnancy is – complex and can make you feel a million different ways it's so much easier to sweep it under the rug to be dismissive of it and I think particularly in in emergency in hospitals where they're dealing with the acute you know they want to get you in and out really quickly that's they want to get you in assessed and then move you on and whether that's moving you on to a ward with you know your particular the specialty or moving you out of the hospital altogether, it, does, it doesn't matter to them. They just need to get you out of ED. And so if there isn't somewhere for them to move you on within the hospital, then they move you out of the hospital. And yeah. there is so, because of this 20-week check-in rule, I don't know the exact specifics of it in the other states, but I'm pretty sure it's the same. But in New South Wales, for example, you can't book into your maternity hospital, your delivery hospital, until you're 20 weeks gestation, like maybe 18 weeks if the dates match up so they don't want to know about you right so if you present to ed here and you're prior to that they can't send you on to the maternity ward and they're not going to put you anywhere else in the hospital because you're a pregnant woman so you go to maternity if you can't go to maternity you go home and this is a problem that's happening all over the country where no one wants to stand up and take responsibility for pregnant women unless it's related directly to complications with the baby So even if you're Mm. after 20 weeks in some places or even if, you know, there's a state where you can get in earlier or for whatever reason you can get in earlier, 
maternity only wants to treat you if it's about the pregnancy and hyperemesis isn't seen as being part of about the pregnancy it's a side effect that's only affecting the mother but really it's in league with things like preeclampsia yes and gestational <laughs> diabetes and these things that are complications of pregnancy but yeah. have but extreme complications if left untreated and i don't see why we don't put it in that the group, same category you know? yeah yeah Absolutely. Okay. Well, let's move on then to what hyperemesis gravidarum Australia can do for sufferers and what gaps you're hoping to fill with your charity and what kind of support you offer, et cetera. So the charity, what we try to do is just provide information. That's, that's the biggest thing. So my inbox just fills with emails from people who have been told there's no options or don't know what the options are or or just want to know. Um, and so providing those Society of Obstetric Medicine guidelines to them, kind of running them through it because not everybody is sort of equipped or healthy enough or has an education level or English speaking abilities to read a guideline as dense as that, you know, like it's 70 pages long and it's written for obstetricians. So it's pretty hardcore reading. So I do try to kind of distill it a little bit in terms of, okay, this is what you need to be looking for. These are the pages that are relevant, you know, that sort of thing. And I can help find a practitioner who's come recommended by another sufferer. If you feel your practitioner isn't doing the best by you, all sorts of things. I mean, some women are really interested in receiving fluids in the home. So I try to track down, okay, are there services mm. in their home state who offer that? How do you get in? What's the referral process or that? And then referrals to, you know, um, mental health organizations that I know work specifically with pregnant women. So this is how you can find a mental health practitioner who, you know, has perinatal qualifications or perinatal experience and just providing like a bit of a shoulder to cry on really. Um, I mean, there's mm. more specific stuff like, you know, some women want help navigating Centrelink or insurance and those sorts of things, advocating for themselves. Um, but a lot of the time, you know, I am the first person who said to them like, oh, I'm really sorry this is happening to you. And for a lot of people like that's <laughs> enough, I guess, that and some information mm. because, you know, information and knowledge are power. And I think a lot of people feel powerless in these situations when they go to hospitals, maybe it's the first time you're presenting to a hospital in your adult life. You know, you don't know how the system works. You, you're intimidated by doctors. It's a sort of scary, overwhelming place. And to go in and not be armed with information and then just be told to go home is really like disempowering. So I try to you know, provide, like, if you get an email from me, it's probably 17 pages long because I try to give you as much information as I can, you know, like here are the guidelines, here's a breakdown of it. Here's where you go, you know, it's full of links. Here's more information to this. You might want to read this. If you can't read it, ask someone to do it for you. This is what you can advocate for. This is what you're, you know, within your rights to ask for. And I try to make my communications with women um, and partners and, and parents and stuff as empowering as possible so that they walk away from that knowing okay, no, like I'm entitled to be in control of my healthcare. I'm entitled to ask questions. I'm entitled to ask for second opinions. I'm entitled to ask for a certain level of care just because I'm not paying for it or just because this person is qualified in a way that I'm not or whatever it may be that's making you feel inferior. It doesn't really matter, you know, like ultimately it's a service that's being provided to you. It's your body. It's your baby. It's your health. You know, you're in control you got to try and find a way to get fired up. And so I try to, to bring that energy. I sound like a personal trainer. 
try to bring that energy to like every email that I send, you know, just like, I just want to be a place, you know, the one place where maybe you feel like you've been listened to and um, that I believe that you can survive it because there's just so much doubting that's happening. Um, so that's a big part of it. And then obviously our social media is, is um, focused a lot on awareness and, you know, my favorite things to post are like a couple of weeks ago, I posted about um, prenatal vitamins and how a lot of prenatal vitamins are like really jacked up in stuff that you don't need and really jacked up in mm-hmm. iron because everybody knows, you know, women are notoriously low in iron because we yeah. bleed, bleed every month um, and pregnancy obviously saps you of your iron and then if you're not eating, rah, rah, rah. so prenatal supplements are often really, really full of iron, which can make you nauseous instantly can constipate you really badly which if you're taking Zofran you're already having trouble with that so um you know there are recommended like the big thing that you need in early pregnancy is folic acid and you can get that without iron so you know put this post up on Instagram about it and it just went absolutely bananas and it was just women being like oh my god I knew my prenatal vitamin was making me sick and I'm so happy that someone has finally told me that I'm not crazy because I said to my husband that this thing is making me sick and he didn't believe me. And those posts are my favourite, just being like, here's a little bit of trivia that no one's telling you. Did you know? Yes. Um, And it's like this secret club we're in of like, you know, old wives' tales that aren't old wives' tales that are actually helpful pieces of information that we should all be armed with but no one's telling us. Education and awareness through the social media is a big thing. And then we also run a um, a private Facebook group where, you know, survivors and sufferers are all together and talking and it's a really happy place actually. Yeah. Well, tell us then. So what is the management or treatment of hyperemesis? You talked about some medication and IVs and like put it all together. What is it? So it's a really good antiemetic. So something like um, on Dansetron, it's a, a really good um, antihistamine. So that's doxylamine, rest of it that most women take. It's an acid reducer, so like an antacid, but a prescription one, not just like an over-the-counter one. You need sort of the heavy-duty stuff. But, you know, Gaviscon, I mean, all pregnant women are on Gaviscon and quickies and stuff, but like uh, Rabaprazole is the big one, an acid reducer. Uh, and then a stool softener to just counteract all of the nasty constipation that's coming along with all those drugs. And then it's fluids two to three times a week, which I think, yeah, everyone that's the, that's the stumbling block for a lot of people because it sounds like a lot and it sounds like more than what you'd think you need. But yeah, I said a bit earlier that dehydration sets in way earlier than you realize. So if you're at the point where you're thinking, Oh, I'm going to go in and get fluids, you're probably already super dehydrated and one bag of fluids isn't going to cut it but fluids have also been shown to reduce nausea and vomiting so they actually bring down your symptoms as well as reversing so they're preventative as much as they are restorative or whatever the word would be and I know that that's not possible for a lot of women that there are a lot of women sitting there going well yeah I'd love to get fluids three times a week Caitlin but like I can't just (laughs) turn up I've got a job I've got other kids and I get that I really I'm sympathetic to that if you can go once a week that's better than nothing just don't leave it weeks at a time you know that that's where we fall down I think like you should just be able to walk out with two scripts the name of an over-the-counter stool softener the name of an over-the-counter antihistamine and a letter from your doctor to say that you need to get fluids twice a week so I did want to ask then what should external support for a HG woman look like 
you know, I, I feel like they are really very alone in this because, I mean, I've heard people say before, if you haven't been through it, you don't know. Mm. So what does a HG woman need externally when it comes to support? She needs validation. She needs to be mm. told that it's real and that it's happening to her and that it's you believe her and she's not crazy. Um, and then she needs practical support. So no HG mother should be having to go to the chemist with their nine-month-old baby. So go to the chemist for her. Pick up her scripts from the GP for her. If And also just ask her what she needs because it will be really individual. You know, like I wanted to be left alone a lot of the time. Like if someone had been hovering over me all the time, that would have absolutely driven me mental. But there are other women who don't want to be left alone, who mm. – who don't necessarily want to be talking or or hanging out, but just want someone in the room near them or taking them up, you know, to the hospital and those sorts of things. So, you know, just presumably if you're close enough to her to be offering support when she's pregnant, you've known her for a little while prior to her being pregnant, which means you know that she's a human being, uh, which means you know that you can just have a conversation with her. So just treat her like a human being, ask her what she needs, tell her that you're sorry and then do what she asks. Like, mm. again, it's like the treatment thing. It's really straightforward. Um, yes. and it's really simple, but people fall down on it. I And I don't know why people get caught up in how they feel about things themselves and forget, you know, just deal with the person who's in front of you, who you love. Um, and, yes, yeah, it's, it's pretty simple. But I would say a lot of it needs to be practical because she can't do a lot of that stuff. You know, if, you, yes. if she's a mum already. That practical. Yeah, make sure that you're helping with the other kids. Make sure, you know, that you're taking some of that mental load for her, that she's not worrying about who's feeding the kids or picking them up from school or taking them to hockey practice, you know. Cleaning the house. And cleaning the house. Yeah. Oh, my God, send a yeah. cleaner to her house, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So what do we know about the impact of HG on partners? <sighs> so very little. Um, mm. Everything that I would say would be anecdotal, uh, in that it's very, very hard for them because they're watching someone they love just waste away and they feel out of control of what's happening and they they don't know how to help, you know. I mean, that's the sympathetic ones. I'm sure there are a lot of partners who just, like, couldn't give a flying, you know, yeah, because they don't believe it or, or they're not sympathetic to it. Um, but I think the ones that do care and, you know, the parents, like my parents really struggled. We lived with them during my first pregnancy and they – they're still totally traumatized by it. You know, it's really difficult to watch someone you love struggle in that way. And I think it's particularly complicated when it's because they're carrying your baby or your grandchild or something. And I think that's a really complicated gray area to be in. You know, I mean, people are dichotomous. It's possible to feel multiple things at one time. But I think two really conflicting extreme emotions like extreme joy and then fear you know, like it's an incredibly loaded thing and it will be so individual to the couple and the relationship and like we have a good relationship and he's very supportive of me and he's a good partner But and I couldn't have done it without him but it takes a toll on you as well. And then the recovery, like yeah. I relied on him so much when, he, you know, he became my carer. I think, you know, we had just gotten married. You know, I was 29, he was 30-something um, and, you know, we were young and, like, you don't expect to be, like, nursing your new wife, your new 29-year-old wife on her what felt like my deathbed um, within the first six months of being married. Like, it's not what you imagine, especially when 
it's related to pregnancy. So yeah, it's loaded. It's complicated. No one talks about it. You know, one in 10 dads will develop postpartum depression. Like that's mental. It's so sad. I think I would imagine within the HG community, that number is probably a bit higher. And I think this is why an organization like yours is so necessary because for those that feel helpless, this kind of does give them their power back, both the sufferer and the partner, because now they have somewhere to go. They have resources. They have a treatment plan. They know how to fight for their rights. Like, you know, the list kind of goes on. So, mm. yeah, I, I do feel for those that are watching this happen. Mm. Uh, I imagine that being very difficult, um, mm. while I obviously feel more for the person yeah. suffering. Yeah, they can't have too much sympathy. They're still not vomiting. No. <laughs> <laughs> Just wrapping up, I did have one more question, and I, I found this quite common within the HG community, and that being that women are reluctant or maybe they've finalized their decision on further children. So their reproductive decisions, I guess, Mm. um, that this is quite common and Mm. they feel, I guess, robbed of it. And I guess, yeah, maybe a little bit of resentment and anger and whatever else can come into play here. But my question more was, uh, is this common? Because I've been chatting to a lot of people lately about uh, how they don't feel done, but they're done. So do you also help women and families plan for a HG pregnancy? Yeah. So the the numbers are, I think it's 75% of women will reduce the number of future pregnancies because of their experiences with hypermesis. 75%. Um, yes. wow. So, yeah, I mean, a big part of what I do is is talking to women who have had pregnancies in the last few years prior to say the guidelines coming out or prior to my organization being established and they want to have another baby, but they're terrified of repeating their experiences and they want to know if things have improved, if things are easier, if things are better, what, what options are available to them. So I do have a whole resource on that, which I wrote in consultation with an obstetric consultant who was the lead author on the so man's guidelines. So it really is like up to date. It's totally in line with, with the recommendations. Um, and it helps you. I mean, I think a big part of it is obviously the information that's included in it, but it's also feeling in control from the beginning. So it helps you know what to talk to your doctor about, know how to get on top of things. It's like an actual plan that you fill out so that you feel like it's not just going to hit you, you know, you, you have a plan and yeah, I mean, it's it's really common, this this reducing the pregnancies because, I mean, yeah, it's absolutely terrifying to think that you would willingly, like it's bad enough when it happens to you and, and you don't know that it's coming, but then to walk into it willingly is is complicated. Like I had so many doctors in my second pregnancy be like, well, you know what you signed up for. So, you know, like it gives them another reason to be dismissive of, of what's happening to you because you've chosen it. And it's like, I didn't choose to have hyperemesis. I've chosen to have another baby. And it's every person, it's every family's right to add and grow their family in whatever they, they want. And we shouldn't be taking it off the table because of this, because of a treatable, manageable condition. And so how do we then, if we've been dismissed by practitioners or hospitals or, you know, any kind of healthcare clinic or place, is there something we can do to let them know, hey, hyperemesis is a thing. Like you, you need to be implementing something for this. Yes. Oh my God. So 
every single hospital in the country has a feedback system. So mm. that's how I got in touch with my delivery hospital after my first baby. You, There's a, like a patient liaison. There might be a form or an email. Write down everything that happened to you. Try and be as specific as you can. If you know the practitioner's names, use them. If you have dates, use that. But just tell them, you know, like this was my experience and I came in here and this is what happened and it was horrible and it made me feel terrible. And, you know, most hospitals have these like consumer advisory groups and consumer liaisons because they are a business. They rely on people coming to their hospitals. And so, you know, just the same as you would go to a restaurant and if you got like a crappy meal, you would feed back, you would do the same thing. And that's how change is made. Like my hospital totally rewrote its hyperemesis policy based on the email that I sent them. And like, I'm no one. They had no reason to listen to me. It was just an email from a consumer who had a bad experience and they wanted to do something about it. So there's ways of doing that through the hospital. If the hospital doesn't listen to you individually um, or they want more information, say like, absolutely come to me. Like I work with, with healthcare professionals on developing their policies. You know, I'm working with New South Wales Health at the moment on writing a statewide policy. Like it's absolutely possible to make change just because something has been the way that has been for so long doesn't mean that it's going to happen again. So, and I think there is a receptiveness to it at the moment that, there hasn't been prior. So, you know, even if you had a baby five years ago, send them an email and say, I'd really like to know what your hyperemesis policy is because this was my experience five years ago and I want to believe that it's different. And if it's not, can I tell you about my experiences so that you can change it? You know, it's never too late to provide feedback. Um, And I do believe that they want to hear it. You know, I think maybe in large part why things have gone unchanged is because no one's talking about it. Because also this is an incredibly traumatized community of women it's totally understandable that you would get away from these pregnancies and never want to speak about them again and want to pretend that they didn't happen and and not rehash them with people, especially the people who traumatized you in the first place. So I totally understand that. There's so much power in that, like telling your story and reclaiming it and doing something with it and and making change. So I hope that there there are people who can find strength in doing it that way because that's how we we create change. Well, I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Me too. It's almost been a little bit therapeutic for me. <laughs> Caitlin, you are doing absolutely incredible things in this space. And I know the, the people around me and in my circles and also the people I chat to on the internet, complete randoms on the internet, are grateful for people like you and what you're doing. And I, and I, and I think that post kind of getting the traction that it did proves that because it was all your resources that I was sharing and your information that I was sharing. So, and I agree with you, the more people are talking about this, I think, the further we're going with change and reducing stigma and reducing shame and guilt and fear and all the things that um, are wrapped up in this really terrible condition. But thank you so, so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me and and for dedicating a whole episode to it and for so generously sharing your story as well. I know that that's not easy to do, especially when you're playing host and and doing all these other, wearing all these other hats. So thank you. I'm really happy to be here. If you or someone you know is struggling or has struggled with HG, please consider seeking support through Hyperemesis Australia via their website or support groups. You can reach them through hyperemesisaustralia.org.au. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you're listening and would like to share your story with us or feel compelled to talk about issues surrounding women's health, please don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. You can find us at The Power of Birth on Instagram and Facebook or on our website, thepowerofbirth.net. 
If you loved this episode, we would love it if you left us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on and share us with your family and friends. The conversation has to start somewhere. Thank you again for listening and we hope you join us in the next episode. Thank you.